This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Full steam ahead for one country when it comes to the vaccines. Uh, the UK quickly approving Pfizer's vaccine says people could start getting shots within weeks. No messing around there. If Britain can approve a vaccine so quickly, why can't the U.S.? We'll get into what's taking so long over here. CDC revising the quarantine guidelines. You can get out quicker than before. The CDC says healthcare workers and nursing home residents should be the first people to get a vaccine, but will people cheat the system? Even with testing, precautions, safety measures, you can still get sick. Uh, We know this. We'll hear about one woman's uh, COVID ordeal. Movie industry and restaurant workers are being called up to team up to get some much-needed help. But we start in the U.K., the approval of the Pfizer vaccine, when people can line up to get it. Dr. Zeshan Qureshi, pediatrician, global health physician, King's College Hospital in London. So, doctor, how did it happen that uh, Pfizer's vaccine is first going to be used there? Well... I feel very fortunate that it has happened. Um, Each country has had their own process by which they are approving vaccines. Each country has had a different priority to dealing with coronavirus. Um, America perhaps were a little bit later in recognising that there was a problem. Whereas in the UK, when we did decide to go through this, there was a sense of rationalising processes, investing money and investing expertise in ensuring it happened very quickly. Data from the trial from the Pfizer vaccine has not just been analysed at the point of completion, but has been analysed at each step point along the way with the vaccine. In addition, a lot of safety checks that would be done in series have been uh, been done in parallel. And that's meant that we can proudly say we've approved the vaccine faster than any other country. Is it the same kind of process, though, where you have somebody look at this? Because there was some word going around earlier saying, oh, they got it first because they rely more on, on the company data. And it's not as critical as the FDA that goes through and looks through all this. And that's why it's going to take you know another week, two, three for us here. Well, I think the challenge is that each country is going to have its own definition of what rigorous is, but the reality is the NIHR have taken no shortcuts compared to the standard process that we use for approving medications and approving vaccines. What we have been able to do is, in the context of the global pandemic, accelerate processes without taking any shortcuts to make sure that we got the vaccine first. Well, do you think that we're being just overly cautious here? I think if the vaccine has been approved in the UK, then it's likely to be something that is safe elsewhere. And I don't think we have time to waste. We'll see what happens when the vaccine rolls out and we'll get more and more data as time progresses. But but in reality, the time to act is now. Plans for rolling it out. What do those look like in terms of you got to keep it so very, very cold, you know, negative 94? Or different numbers that for is, you guys, you know, different scale. That, but that, 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 that is a challenge. It has to be kept at a very, very low temperature, although it can be put into a fridge for a few days at a time. Um, we need to do, get on top of the supply chains, the storage and the distribution network. And perhaps that might be a reason why other countries are hesitant. But 
we have plans in place for that happening and vaccines are going to start from next week. How are they deciding in the UK who gets the vaccine first? Here in, in this country, as you probably know, we're very fond of meetings. So there are endless meetings uh, about who gets what, when and where. How is it working where you are? Well, the simple thing that is being done is those that are most vulnerable and those that are most exposed are going to be the ones prioritised. So healthcare workers, those in care homes, those visiting care homes, the elderly, and those with conditions that make them more vulnerable to the infection, they're all going to be top of the queue. And then over the course of the rest of this year and next year, the vaccine programme will be rolled out more extensively. Dr. Zeshan Qureshi, pediatrician, global health physician, King's College Hospital. Britain is quick, but the U.S. seems to be lagging with the vaccine approval. This comes as cases, deaths, and the number of people in the hospital surge across the country. So what exactly is the holdup? Arthur Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's School of Medicine. Arthur, how did it happen that uh, they're going to get the vaccine, the Brits, before us? Well, it happened because they have a different style of emergency use approval. They do rolling data every week. Their regulatory body takes a look. We set up meetings with advisory committees, have them review the data, then wait a couple more weeks for the uh, FDA to review all the data. And there's a lot of it. We're talking thousands of pages. So they're willing to kind of do it week by week and keep the regulators, if you will, poised to move. We're a little more staggered, uh, trying to uh, kind of do it on a, a scheduled basis with time in between for the big review. I like the European idea, but uh, and I've called for our groups to go faster. I mean, people are dying. As you pointed out, we flubbed just about every aspect of this. So getting the vaccine out as fast as we can to healthcare workers and nursing home residents is crucial. But uh, I think my cries are falling on deaf ears. We're going to be waiting another two weeks. Yeah, I was going to say, we were just talking about meetings. Now there's too many meetings, actually. Uh, but when is our next like goalpost meeting? There's something that's happening on, on the 10th. And then yeah. after that, maybe we have another week or two before people actually get shots. Or, or another meeting. <laughs> <laughs> well, the 10th will be the big meeting. Uh, a lot of recommendations being made then about emergency use. To the FDA, the FDA will take a day or two to think about it, and then I think they'll say okay. And happily, some vaccines are already shipping. Uh, there have been shipments in New York State. I think California's got some ready to go. So I'm thinking maybe five days, six days after that December 10th meeting, say December 15, 16, should start to see healthcare workers on the front lines getting vaccinated. Why do we have this? Almost madness. Mike and I were talking about it, as he pointed out during the break, for meetings. Uh, I mean, sometimes it, there's, you know, a meeting can have a, a good purpose. But in an emergency situation like this, you know, if a ship is sinking, you don't want to first have a meeting to decide uh, what you're going to do with the lifeboats. You get on the lifeboats and get off the sinking ship. So meetings are killing us. Well, here's why. It's trust. So if you look at the polls, there's a lot of folks saying, I don't know about this vaccine. I'm not going to take it. Remember, a vaccine's only as good as the number of people who accept the vaccine. We can have vaccines discovered, but if they stay on the shelves because people reject them, they're no good. Um, even doctors and nurses in some recent polls have shown a reluctance to take these new vaccines. They're nervous. They think they've been rushed. We had a situation that Britain didn't have quite as 
badly, which is we had a president and a White House pushing, 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 get these things approved before Election Day. You know, I want to be able to claim that I solved a problem, said Donald Trump. He bred an enormous amount of doubt. Then he went after some of his own experts. So it isn't just the meetings. It's the distrust that exists here in vaccines, in what the federal government is saying about vaccines, in what authorities say about vaccines. That's part of what we're overcoming by having these giant assemblies where the FDA says the data is good and we're signing off. Do some people overcome some of that when they see the healthcare workers get them? I mean, if all the nurses have taken it and everything's working out okay, and then some of your essential worker neighbors start taking it and it's working out okay. I think that's a great point, and I think that is exactly what's going to happen. I think, well, we see these polls saying, I don't know, I'm not sure, I don't want to be first. If your grandmom is in a nursing home and you know that many people have died there, if you see all these sports teams getting caught up unable to play, canceling things because of high positivity rates. If you're stuck uh, isolating and quarantining because things are out of control and healthcare workers and people uh, who work in nursing homes are getting these things and they're having uh, no adverse reactions and it looks like they're getting protection, I think we're going to shift from meetings and we're going to shift <laughs> from distrust to how come I can't get this vaccine? And very, very briefly, what happens with all, I mean, all these vaccines, I know because I'm in one of the trials, what happens to all these trials that were designed for two years? That can't go on, can it? Uh, that's a good point. Thank you for being in the trial. Um, but here's what happens. As soon as uh, these things get approved, you or others are going to say, am I in the placebo group? Because if I am, I want a chance to get this newly emergency authorized vaccine, and I want out of the placebo group. Sometimes scientists say, well, we can't do that. You signed up. We need to get the data for more than two months or three months. You got to stay in. But I think that's not going to happen. People have to know if they're in the placebo group and they want to go get this agent, they have to be unblinded. You have that right. You should know and be able to say, I want to take this vaccine. If I'm in a high risk group, I want to get it. The CDC has new quarantine guidelines. It was two weeks, but now the CDC says you can just quarantine for 10 days if you have no symptoms and seven if you have no symptoms and a negative test. Dr. Erwin Redliner, director of the Pandemic Resource and Response Initiative, also at Columbia University Medical Center. So, doctor, this is going to be easier on people? It's a much less burdensome, and I think it's a good idea. And it's also uh, justifiable by what we know about the uh, the period of contagion and so on. So I am very comfortable with it, and I, I think many of us have been expecting a shortening, and that's, uh, you know, it's basically good news. It's not perfect, but it's it's a hell of a lot better than the 14-day. So, so is there, though, sound science to back that up, or is it just that people don't like going, you know, for 14 days, and so people basically have caved into that kind of pressure? Yeah, no, I don't think there's that kind of pressure that people would cave into. On the other hand, this is not like a scientific experiment. This is this comes from observation more than sort of prospectively testing whether 7 or 10 days is as good as uh, 14 days. It's just that we've observed that over time that uh, within that 7 day, seven to 10-day period, if you're going to get something, that's when you get it. And you don't need those extra 4 to you know 6 days uh, of, additional, uh, of uh, additional quarantine. So... Yeah, I think it's sound enough to make the recommendation seem uh, appropriate and uh, to people that are, you know, epidemiologists and the scientists dealing with this, 
Um, but it's like I said, not run, not not derived from an experiment per se. But I don't think there's any caving in, and uh, I would be very very distressed if there was evidence that the that somebody that some of the one of the key agencies like the FDA or the CDC in this case actually caved into public pressure. I don't think that's going to happen. Real quick before we let you go, there also is the uh, the word on travel. And number one, it's you know try not to go. Let's not travel. Uh, the other line is. Test before, test a few days after you get back, and really, once you get back, this is not the time to be running all over town. You have to limit what you're doing. Take that week as a real slow week. Absolutely correct, and I think that's really important. And but I think the first thing you said is also very important. Unfortunately, we just had Thanksgiving. A million people traveled last Sunday by airplane, um, and we're you know facing the Christmas and the Hanukkah and the other the other winter holidays. And this is a very dangerous time, which is why most of us are predicting a very, very difficult uh, January coming up here. And people should really try to avoid traveling. The issue, if you if you get off the airplane and you test, but you've gotten infected while on the airplane, it's gonna, it takes three to seven days for your test to show up positive, even if you got infected on your flight or in the uh, airport. So it's not entirely reliable, but, you know, they're relatively frequent testing and taking it easy and staying away from others and certainly following all the guidelines with masks and, and separation and so on is absolutely key, guys. And it's really, really important that people pay attention. Dr. Erwin Redliner directs the Pandemic Resource Response Initiative. He's also at Columbia University Medical Center. Doctor, thanks for coming back on. Coming up after this short break, will people be able to skip to the front of the line to get a coronavirus vaccine? Healthcare workers and nursing home residents in the U.S. will be the first to receive a coronavirus vaccine, but can people cheat and skip ahead to get a vaccine earlier than they should? Somebody always tries to oh, cheat. Yeah. Who's going to make sure that doesn't happen? Dr. Koser Talat is an assistant professor in international health, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. So, doctor, how does somebody prove they deserve to be up there in the front? So I think that's a really good question, but I think that the first vaccines will be rolled out amongst the healthcare professionals and those in long-term care facilities. So it'll be pretty easy to know who they are. Um, there'll be people who are staffing your hospitals and your clinics and your pharmacies right now, um, people who are working in the nursing homes. And, and um, I think that initially the vaccines will probably be rolled out in, in places of work. Yeah, but then, but um, then it gets complicated. It does get complicated after that. Um, after that, it's essential workers. So it's the bus drivers, it's people working in grocery stores police and policemen, first responders. Um, it's it's the people who are, run our warehouses and and um, make sure that our food is it's at the grocery store and make sure that the grocery store stays open. So it's all of those people. And again, I think um, there'll probably be some form of inf in um, identification that will be asked for, or it will be um, the vaccines will be provided again at the at vaccination stations near the workplace. Um, once you start going into people with chronic illnesses, then I think that the vaccine distribution will likely move into clinics and doctor's offices. And so they'll likely know who their patients are and what their pre-existing conditions are and whether they qualify for the vaccines at that point. I guess a couple of things. Number one, you named a lot of categories for essential workers. They're probably a bunch more. I mean, there's no master list of essential workers that are out there. So that's going to be probably there a problem. Is, no, there is. Tell me the list. There <laughs> is. Um, so... It is part of the federal government actually keeps a list of what is considered to be essential workers as part of the Department of Homeland Security. And so you can go online and and find that list. Oh, good. And, so and we'll use the list. Categories. 
Yes. Yes. But but but, but you know, I, I I actually did go online and I did <laughs> I did see that list. It it is literally hundreds of uh, the categories it's are just. It's a lot just, of people. It's amazing, right? I, I mean, you know, you mentioned just a fraction of the numbers of people that the federal government considers essential workers. Uh, among them, uh, people, you know, what Mike and I do in communications. Uh, but Some of the emails would argue that we are not essential. Yeah, but yeah. but there, there aren't going to be initially enough of the vaccines, not no, of the Pfizer not. one, to take care of all of those people on the list. No. And I think that I think that there will be shortages initially of even the, the most uh, highest priority groups um, accessing the vaccine. And we just have to be patient. The manufacturers are making vaccines as fast as they can. Our distribution systems will try to get these vaccines out to people as quickly as they can. And we all just have to continue to wear masks and to be careful, to do social distancing, to wash our hands, to avoid infections until we until our turn comes up and there's a vaccine available. Do you foresee some sort of screening something where you say list your medical problems for once we get to the everybody else period or at least some of these where you know if you do have some comorbidities but then who's to say that you know you can say you're all these things your doctor knows but you need a doctor's note i don't know that that's actually been worked out yet um but i it may be that you will need a doctor's note saying that this is your comorbidities or a list of your medications that um, will identify that. But I don't know that anybody knows how we're going to roll it out to people yeah, with know, chronic illnesses. I think it's much easier to roll it out to people over the age of 65 because all yeah. you have to do is show yeah. ID. Um, and I think actually a lot of people with chronic illnesses will probably fall into other categories. They'll be the healthcare workers. They'll be the essential workers who will actually get the vaccine in the first um, phase 1A and phase 1B of the rollout. Dr. Koster Salat, Assistant Professor, International Health, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, member of the Center for Immunization Research. If you think a negative test means you're in the clear, you might want to listen to this woman's story. Heather Flett publishes the parenting blog 510families.com. She volunteered as a poll worker in Berkeley in Northern California during the election last month. She followed the rules, took all the precautions, still got the virus. Heather's with us now. So you saw lots of people around the election, got a test a couple days later, right? Take us through what happened after that. That's right. So I worked at the polls. It was uh, from Halloween, October 31st through Election Day of November 3rd. And as part of the precautions, as you mentioned, we wear masks. We were also wearing face shields. We were also wearing gloves. We were also alcohol sanitizing everything. Like as careful as we could be, we were. Uh, the polling location was indoors with very high ceilings and I was kind of positioned by the door most of the time. That being said, lots of, um, we had like 18 other poll workers in, in the location regularly and we saw lots of people um, mixing. So I figured that even with that, I would try to get a COVID test and I was able to schedule one for Friday of that week. So that was November 6th. And when I got the negative results, I was like, okay, great, check. You know, that was a little scary, a little dangerous, but I did my, I, I, I'm feeling fine. And I got the negative test results. So I was kind of excited like that that chapter was over and I could put it behind me. And a good friend of mine, Annie said, actually you did not wait long enough it takes longer to incubate and you need to go back. And so the next test I was able to schedule was a week later, um, November 12th on Thursday. And I was not feeling symptoms and 
uh, went in for the test and um, it was one of those uncomfortable uh, nasal swab tests. And, uh, you know, I, I guess additional precautions that I had been taking since working at the polls was I did not go out to the grocery store. I only ordered delivery and I was careful in that regard, but I was not feeling ill and I was not feeling like I needed to quarantine. So I guess then fast forward one more time to that next um, Sunday morning on November 15th, I woke up and I got the text and I clicked through and I had to log in and I had to click through and I was in my mind thinking they sure make you click a lot for a negative test. <laughs> and I saw that it was positive and I couldn't believe my eyes. I punched my husband who was still asleep because it felt like that's important enough. I just punched him right awake and I was like, oh my God, my test is positive. So then we kind of spun into figuring out what our what our own household protocols are. But I was so glad I got the second test and paid a little more attention to how long this this all takes because I, I read up to 50, you know, at least 50% of transmission is from asymptomatic people. So I would consider myself among them. I feel very grateful, but also know that I could have been passing it along. Yeah, you could have been all over town. So, so you you yeah. never you never came down with any symptoms. Did your husband get tested? Um, so that's two questions. Let's see. Um, I would say that my symptoms, if I had them, were very mild, like occasional sore throats, occasional headaches, and honestly, not much worse than I felt a month prior, just being stressed out and having three kids distance learning at home. Yeah, like just in the pandemic, normal fun. aches yeah. and pains never had a fever and nothing respiratory. So my husband went out, the soonest he could get a test was the Tuesday and that was negative. And then the next Friday, he and my three children went and got a, a test um, as recommended or referred by our pediatrician and they were all negative. So the, the thing after I punched him awake and kissed him goodbye is then I sort of isolated in the bedroom. He went, moved in to the top bunk of our nine-year-old you know he had his clean laundry basket in hand from the week and I'm like you'll be fine because he's working from home I'm working from home and the three kids are schooling from home so it it, it worked out but it was weird because we were not ready for that <laughs> yeah all of a sudden so you were either one of the very late developers of this yes. or one of the people who didn't have enough in you to trigger the positive for multiple tests Right. So my second test was positive, but he, it's all very mysterious. Yeah. It, and I, and I, I really, um, I really hope that, you know, to move forward, we can get more, more testing, more reliable, more frequent for, for all of us. It just feels so important, especially what, if it's, we're not all symptomatic. What, what was the first test you got? What kind? Do you know? It was also one of the nasal swab tests. And it was actually at the same at the same test location, but it was um, it just wasn't enough days after. So if I figure the busiest day working the polls was the November third Tuesday election day, and possibly my most likely day of exposure, then the test I first scheduled was only three days after. So your message to everybody is the cautionary tale of you know, wait longer than you think you might need to wait before you feel like you're in the clear and you start going, because it was a good thing you stayed home for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think, I think eight days is the, is the recommended number. I'm not a doctor, but I would definitely go by that, that, you know, you, you kind of feel like if you get sneezed on by someone, you want to go get tested immediately and really to just be careful, 
be a little more cautious than you think you need to be. I always wear a mask. I was wearing a mask and there's strong evidence that that helped me have a milder case. All right, Heather Flett there. Uh, we're glad you're doing okay. The movie and restaurant industry is among the two hardest hit during this whole pandemic. Thousands upon thousands of workers in each have been laid off or furloughed. There's a call to action for workers in both industries to team up. Patty Rockenwagner, former longtime corporate communications exec at Paramount, Time Warner, Comcast, now co-owner of the restaurants Dear John's and Rockenwagner Bakery in the L.A. area. Patty, tell us about how these two industries, because there is crossover, can help each other out. The simple, fastest message is to um, sign a letter to Congress that um, there's a restaurant act that has passed the House it would um, create a $120 billion fund. Um, it has been languishing in the Senate. Uh, Congress goes back into session this week, and the Independent Restaurant Coalition, who has really led the charge on this, and it was born out of the pandemic, has um, put the bill together. If you go on saverestaurants.com, there is a letter that you can sign and send to, the, to your Congress people to basically say it's a no-brainer. For $120 billion relief, you will save 11 million jobs, you will save restaurants around the country, you will save $760 billion, which is the revenue that was generated last year in sales by the restaurant industry. So it's um, a very simple message if, they can, if you can get in touch with your Congress people to let them know they have to pass this bill and pass it fast. Every day, I think you hear in here in Los Angeles of restaurants that are closing um, that will never reopen again. Yeah. We need to stop that. You're asking for some help from from the, the film industry, right? Because some of these guys, they have a lot of reach. We know this. I mean, one tweet can go around the world, right? Exactly right. I mean, that was part of the the, you know, message was that what they have an influence, you know, we don't have. We're independent restaurant. Uh, restaurateurs, chefs, operators, we don't have, you know, massive followings in the same way that so many people in Hollywood do. Um, and given that we essentially um, employ some 60 to 70 percent of our front of house staff, so our waiters, our bartenders, our hosts, our catering staff, our musicians, budding musicians, actors, writers, and stunt people. Um, given that we have this symbiotic relationship, it kind of made sense to me that if we could band together and they can take us on as one of their causes, one of their many causes, that we could actually get this done. Patty, talk to us a little bit about your own establishment. What's it like? How are you dealing? Um, it's been tough. Um, we closed March 16th for the very first time um, when the shutdown happened. We remained closed for the three months till June. Um, at that point, we didn't get any revenue. Um, although I would say, you know, we still had to um, pay insurance, pay, um, you know, workers' comp insurance, pay for taxes, property taxes pay for rent. I mean, it's not like there weren't expenses while your restaurant is closed. I think if you don't own a restaurant, you don't know that just closing a door doesn't mean you can just restart it once you turn the lights back on. Um, so there was a lot of expenditure and not a lot of money coming in. 
we did a fun thing, um, which was mostly to get the kitchen staff back and working, which is we started doing TV dinners. Um, and the reason it's kind of, um, you know, thematic to us is because it's an old chop house. It's from the 1960s. Frank Sinatra owned it. It's a dark kind of clubby restaurant that was a you know so doing a Salisbury steak TV dinner felt like something we could do. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's a great idea. Because um, we weren't really equipped to do takeout at that point. All right. Patty Rock and Wagner, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Stay safe. The tourism industry in every country has been hit hard in this pandemic. Japan is no different. The country has come up with a creative way, though, to stimulate tourism. It's turning to a 60-foot Gundam robot that can walk and move its arms. The robot is modeled after a figure in Mobile Suit Gundam, a Japanese cartoon first uh, first, uh, launched in the late 1970s about enormous battle robots piloted by humans. The series spawned multiple spinoffs and toys, and it gained a worldwide following. The big robot will be the centerpiece of the Gundam Factory. It's a tourist attraction that opens on the 19th of December. Why this year of all years do you build the giant robot? I mean, what can go wrong, right? It'll be fine. It's a 60-foot robot. Yeah. I've I've seen this movie before, (laughs) and we get stepped on. Something to look up to. Yeah, great. Uh, The Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Find us there. Thank you.